Well, this in springtime that I like best personally, kind of a moderation between winter and summer. So fall is a beautiful time of the year, and we have the feasts coming up in less than a month, the Feast of Trumpets at least. So we have a lot to look forward to uh, because there's so much joy and happiness and understanding of God's way and His plan wrapped up in His holy days. So I always look forward to them. Uh, You may have noticed I was limping, and so instead of answering a lot of different queries, I'll just say I jammed my ankle uh, yesterday, and then I jumped out of the skid steer, having forgotten about it, and jammed it again, so it's sore. But Nelson had a ladder fall uh, fold up on him yesterday, and his ribs are so sore he can hardly breathe, so I guess these things do happen. We're still very, very human, are we not? Anyway, uh, here's an announcement already about the feast. Uh, This is about housing. Uh, I did mention it at Bible study, but I think we need to to spend a little time on it here because we have people across the country who will be coming out for the Feast of Tabernacles. And since we're staying here on this property for the feast... Uh, We can do as we have in past years. People sometimes swap houses uh, for a temporary dwelling or stay in trailers or tents or whatever you might prefer. But uh, if you're coming into the area and need housing, Gordon Guller will be in charge of coordinating that. So if you have room at your house or a house or part of a house or whatever that might be made available to someone, uh, please let Gordon know. And if you're coming in from out of town, uh, also let him know uh, so he can help coordinate it. It's much easier for to have someone here who knows what is happening and can ask or already has a list of people that are available rather than you across the country uh, trying to call out here and say, Can I stay in your house? <laughs> That's a a difficult thing to do, uh, but with a housing coordinator, it makes it much easier to get people together and make arrangements. Uh, Probably most of you have his number. Uh, It's 435-691-5328. Is that right? Yeah. 435-691-5328. And if he does not answer, he will get back to you. At least that's what everybody says on their answering machine. Greg Tate's a little more honest about it. He says, we might get back to you someday. (laughs) I like that one. Anyway. Is this clock... This clock up here probably is about right, isn't it? Some... uh, some way is going back and forth to the, or some way going back and forth to the hospital all this past week. I misplaced my watch. It's uh, under the seat in the car or in my briefcase or somewhere, but uh, we'll see how this goes. By the way, uh, in terms of George, people do ask about him. Uh, I picked two of his daughters, Janet and Jennifer, up at the Las Vegas airport on Wednesday. And now they're taking the bulk of the sitting day and night, taking turns uh, uh, 
I was about to wear out, and I'm sure, was sure thankful to see them come. <laughs> but uh, he does seem to be getting some better. Uh, some of you may have received the update that Janet sent out uh, on email this morning, uh, which is essentially what I reported in Bible study. Uh, George is getting better. The uh, infection in his bloodstream seems to be clearing up much less than it was. Uh, his leg seems to be under control. Uh, but the staph infection that he got turned into or somehow contacted a flesh-eating bacteria. Uh, necrotizing fasciitis, I think, is the technical term for it, but uh, it kills the flesh and uh, can be a very, very serious thing. Uh, it is highly communicable, too, by the way, although it is not airborne as a virus, it's a bacteria. Uh, and I was there in the room day and night for five, six days before they told me <laughs> that I ought to be wearing gloves and a gown if I got near him. Uh, but uh, it in, in any case, uh, that will be completely gone and under control before uh, he is allowed back out in public so we don't have to worry about it. But uh, we're getting some pretty nasty things that are coming down upon us here in the end time as a result of our poor diets and the chemicals and the junk and everything that is this world today. God said, woe to those who pollute the earth. And it's begin we're beginning to understand more and more day by day what that means because we are living in a very polluted environment and we're getting all kinds of new things, new diseases, new afflictions that were not around years ago. So anyway, uh, it does appear that things are getting more under control, and George is on the mend somewhat. Uh, he started therapy yesterday and was able actually to move both legs a little bit and, uh, and able to sit up. So uh, he's very, very much improved over what he was, and he's getting where he can communicate a bit if if any want to go see him. I would say stay briefly. Uh, he'll wake up and he'll speak to you and go back to sleep anyway. So uh, then you're sitting there saying, what do I do? Visit with the girls. But uh, nonetheless, uh, be aware that touching his bed or getting near, uh, that is something that can be contagious. And uh, just, I guess, take precautions and enter at your own risk, put it that way. Uh, because uh, there is a certain level of exposure there. I don't know just how much. The staff does, when they go near him, put on plastic gowns and gloves, and then they take them off when they get away from the bed, so they don't wear them all the time in the room, but only when they're near. But they have, I think they've contained a lot of it as well, and it's diminishing, so it's probably not the same level of danger that it was a few days ago. So things are improving there. Anyway, keep praying for George. Uh, he's not uh, out of the woods and in the clear yet until that is completely gone, but he is improving a great deal. So uh, there is some encouragement in that. Not only that, but he now says that he has some hope that he's going to live because when he first went there with his blood sugar so high and suffering as he was, he really thought he was going to die. And it would have killed him, uh, uh, naturally speaking. But now he has some hope that he's going to live, and that change in mental attitude helps a lot. And I noticed yesterday, 
he's beginning to make a few wisecracks and get sarcastic with the nurse, nurses. So uh, that tells me right there he's getting better. Because uh, a few days ago, Schumer, nothing penetrated. It was just uh, blank, basically. So uh, anytime somebody starts getting where they can comprehend and understand uh, humor and sarcasm and so on, then they're getting back to, to normal to one degree or another. Anyway, that's probably enough of that, but I wanted to at least update you somewhat on our brother's condition and uh, beseech us to continue praying that, that he be well and be back among us as soon as possible. Let's go back to 1 John again today, chapter 4, 1 John 4. Now this, the first few verses especially of, of this chapter have been a bit enigmatic uh, because of what he says, and he makes a division here between those who believe in Christ and do not, and it almost sounds, as you read it on the surface, like he's just referring to those who believe in Christ and those who did not accept who he was. Remember, John lived uh, after Christ was crucified and resurrected and was dealing with people who had a level of belief or unbelief in that he was truly the Christ and truly the Messiah. Some rejected him wholeheartedly, and some accepted that he could have been the Messiah, whether or not they were part of the church. But as we get into this a little bit, I think we're going to see, especially considering the context of everything that John is saying in this book, that he means it to be deeper and more understood than what immediately meets the eye. Let's get in and see that. He says, Beloved, so he is essentially writing to the church. Understand that. He's not writing to the world who did not believe in Christ at all. He's writing here to the church. Beloved, and that's to whom he would be speaking as the church, believe not every spirit but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, he's talking to church people here about trying the spirit, the attitude, the mind, the belief of different ones. Uh, there are many people who had gone out into the world teaching the things they wished to teach, perhaps trying to represent Christ. And those who were in the church, perhaps had been baptized, who still had false doctrine and did not accept Christ as he is. Now that's an important thing to grasp. Because in today's world, we have a lot of people who accept the name of Christ and yet are anti anything that Christ did and his true doctrine and most of the Bible. So they accept the name only, but not the truth of the Bible. There's a vast difference there. And even within the church, you have people who will espouse false doctrine. And they were among the church brethren. As he says later on here in, in 2 John, 
If there come any to you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, nor bid him Godspeed. So the teachings, the doctrine of Christ, were very, very important. Not just his name, but what he did, what he taught, how he lived, were a part of accepting Christ. You know, if you accept name only, then you're not accepting the man, the being, for what he was. You're just in name. You can do that with any human organization on the earth. You can be a joiner. There are people who join all kinds of organizations, but they may not believe in the core beliefs of those organizations. They're just, uh, let's say, a Veterans of Foreign, well, a uh, uh, Moose Lodge or whatever in name because of the social benefits or business benefits, perhaps, But they may not even know all the things behind the Moose or the Masonics or whoever you want to name. They're there for their particular reasons, but some of them, if they understood what those organizations really stood for, would be shocked and amazed. So it's basically name only. So you have to try the spirits, whether they are of God. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Come there should be better translated coming in the flesh. It's one thing to admit that Christ lived on the earth 2,000 years ago and had come in the flesh, or is from John's perspective less than 100 years later, 50, 60 years later, that he had come. There are a lot of people who understand that he had, has, has come or was here, but do they grasp that he is coming today, living in the flesh, living his life through human beings? Now let's see that, Colossians 1, verse 27. He's, he's talking about the love of God in this book. But there are conditions to the love of God, the true love of God, that most people do not understand. Colossians 1, verse 26. He's speaking, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Now, if you tell the mystery of God that we are to become God to most people, they think that's crazy. But it has been revealed to the true saints of God, to his people who have his spirit, what his primary purpose and reason for creating human beings was and is. That we are to be part of his family someday and to be very God when we're changed from flesh to spirit, from mortal to immortality. That's blasphemy to most religionists. But it is manifest to his saints, and they basically are the only ones that truly believe this in the way that God means it. Anyway, uh, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, sharing it not only with Israel but with the Gentiles, and here it is, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Christ has to be living his life in us, and that is what gives us the hope of glory, of being glorious, of being glorified. See, the mystery is humans becoming glorified to become God, to be like him, to see him as he is, and no man can see him and live in his glory. But we are to see him in his glory because we are to be glorified as well. So, it is not just that Christ came, but that he is coming, that he is living in our hearts and minds through his Spirit. Let's see that some more. Galatians 4. And verse 19, I believe I want. Galatians 4.19, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. Now we, of ourselves, we're going to examine a little bit, are not godly and are not Christ-like by nature. And you have to take that raw material, which is a human being with human nature which is contrary to God, and you have to form within that heart and mind and emotional setup Christ's attitude, his approach, his conduct, his thoughts. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. We have to come to think as he thought, as 1 John 2, 6 says, to walk as he walked. To do as he did and think as he thought. Those two scriptures sum that up. So his way of thinking has to overcome, in that sense, overpower, supplant, and uh, substitute the human nature that we have for his nature. Christ being formed in you. Second uh, Corinthians 13 and verse 5. He says here, to examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Now, I think most people at one time or another who are in the church of God have pondered from time to time whether they're truly converted or not, whether they truly have God's Spirit or not, partially because they are grappling with their human nature which is ungodly, and failing so often to live up to what we ought to be, to Christ's way of thinking, acting, living, walking, doing. So we begin to question whether we are in the faith. Now Paul says you should examine yourself, whether you are in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves? Now, this is an important, very revealing statement. Know you not your own selves? Don't you re or do you realize in your mind how that Jesus Christ is in you except you be reprobates? Now, we by nature, are reprobate from God. 
We'll see that in different terms a little later on. But what is a reprobate? In normal thinking, that's somebody you don't want to be. That's somebody who's probably in prison for having done some vile things. But he says, except that Christ be in you, you're reprobate. Without the Spirit of God, we are alienated from God. We are not in contact or communication with God. It is the Holy Spirit that opened the disciples' minds so that they could even understand spiritual things. Because having spent literal, physical time eating, drinking, uh, dwelling with Christ for those years, they still didn't get spiritual things. Not until the Holy Spirit came in Acts did they suddenly become understanding, comprehending, powerful, insightful, understanding and comprehending spiritual things. Unless God acts upon our minds and draws us to Him, we cannot serve God. We cannot find God. We cannot have a relationship with Him. Except the Spirit of the Father draw him. You cannot understand. So if you do understand human, I mean spiritual things, then the Spirit of God must be acting in and with you to one degree or another. Most of us, if not all of us, at one time or another have been so excited about the things we've learned about God and the truth and his Bible that we lay it on other people. They don't get it. They don't want it. They're alienated by it. They can't grasp it. It is foolish to them because God has not acted there. But I trust that you shall know that we are not reprobates, Paul and those in the church and the other ministers and so on, because of why? Because they were preaching and teaching and doing their best to live up to the things of God. Had accepted the word of God. So, uh, let's see, Galatians 2.20, I want to add one more to that particular thought. Galatians 2. And verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. So, going through baptism is a symbol of death. A dying of the old way of thinking, the old way of doing. Baptism is supposed to be a turning of a leaf, a changing of a life, a changing of approach to life. It's not just a ritual but it signifies or symbolizes the death of the old way of thinking and beginning to think a new way. So he says, I was crucified with Christ. Christ died on that stake. And we symbolically die in that water. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, still being in the flesh... 
I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he said, I'm not living my own life with my own direction, with my own goals and purposes now. My goal and my purpose is to fulfill why God put me on this earth, to be part of his kingdom someday. And everything that I do, everything I think, has that as its central thought. The human things we do, day in and day out, need to be done in such a way that if Christ were doing them, that's how he would do them. Whether it's working for an employer, studying in school, playing sports, driving a car, any and everything we do needs to be done with a thought in mind, how would Christ do this? Because we are in a battle to have him formed in us instead of what we were. Conversion is a lifelong process. We ask, is someone converted? And by that we mean, did they repent? Were they baptized? Do they have God's Spirit? Is what we mean by asking that general question. However, if you were to ask me, is someone converted? I would have to say no. There is none that is converted. Now, if you say, is so-and-so being converted, I could say yes. It is a process. Christ does not form in us, and we don't automatically do the things that he did and think what he thought upon initial repentance and baptism. Paul found the flesh still warring in his members there in Romans. still a problem. It doesn't happen overnight. So, we have to go through life with him being formed in us, living his life through us. Which means we have to do an awful lot of submitting, considering human beings being what they are. It is not easy to submit to God. It's very, very difficult so when he says, every spirit that confesses that Christ is coming in the flesh has a much deeper meaning than just confessing that he existed and came in the flesh. We have to grasp and understand that as a human being we do not follow the ways of God by nature, but that with his spirit in us, through a lifelong battle, we can learn to serve him better and better as time goes on. So someone who really understands that, understands that Christ is coming in the flesh. He is coming to us through his Spirit and dwelling in us. That is why he says we are the temple of God, the temple of his Spirit, and Satan tries to crowd him out, and our human nature tries to crowd him out of our mind and emotions. And those two powers working together can do a splendid job given opportunity. 
That's why it's a fight. A constant battle to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Now, when you understand that concept, then you understand that Paul is, I mean, John here is talking not just to the world at large, but even people in the church who don't grasp and understand what is going on with a human being and trying to develop the right kind of relationship with deity and have false doctrines and don't understand really what is happening. Every spirit that confesses, believes not, that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. So, anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-God's Word is throughout the world. And it was encroaching upon the church, even as we in the end-time church have seen the world and Satan's way encroach upon us. And in fact, the leadership of the church was drawn away and right back into the Protestant world instead of following God. We saw the church fall apart. We saw many people's lives fall apart. We have seen our own lives nearly fall apart. And hopefully we're seeing through the confusion and seeing God's true understanding. So, he makes a difference here then in verse 4. He says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. So, it could be the spirit of Satan, which teaches against God, or it could be the spirit of Satan through human nature, which does not want to truly believe in God, or believe in God's way, to put it more specifically. It is innate within all human beings, to one degree or another, to want to believe in an afterlife, to want to believe in some kind of world beyond this one. We, to one degree or another, realize we're human and temporal. Even as children, we begin to see the death of our pets. We see the death of relatives, grandparents, and then later parents, maybe and so on in the normal course of things. So, we don't want to die. And there is a spirit in man which is different and above that of the animals. God has placed something in our brain. Scientists can explore brains and dead ones or alive ones of animals and men. And they can find no or very little difference in the physical way that brains work. But God put something special in the human mind that is different than the animals. It didn't evolve. God put it there when he created man. And he made the animals on a lesser plane or level of intelligence... He gave us a special gift, a special understanding. Verse 5, they, 
whether it be people who are just out in the world who did not accept Christ, or even those within the church who did not understand and weren't truly being converted and did not have the Spirit of God. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now when he said, try the spirits, in verse 1, that can be a bit of an enigma. You know, did a, an apparition appear on the end of your bedpost? Or, you know, did things move on the dresser? And you're trying to decide, is this the spirit of God or is this the spirit of Satan? So we're, we're in this, in our mind perhaps, sometimes thinking, well, then is this the spirit of God or is this the spirit of evil? Which is it? Well, he tells us here that if they hear the true ministry of God, John speaking of himself, he was the only one left basically at this point, uh, if they hear the things about Christ that John taught and the other apostles taught before they died, if they hear that, then that's the Spirit of God. This word reflects the Spirit of God. Everything else out there in the world is not of God. It is of the Spirit of the devil. Now, God says he gives his Spirit to them that obey. So... The mind of God, the spirit of God in a human being leads to obedience to the words of God. Now there's some confusion, I think, even within the church. And people misuse some knowledge and understanding to try to promulgate a specific doctrine that they may like. So it has been popular, and I've seen this for decades, for someone to say, well, what Herbert Armstrong understood in 1927 or 1938 or 1943 or 1957 or whatever is what we go with. Now, often they'll go back to the earliest thing they can find that he said about a particular subject. And they will use this phrase, we have to go back to the faith once delivered. And they are saying that in the context of Herbert Armstrong's conversion, which also was a process, please understand. He grew in the grace and knowledge of our Lord over a period of time. He first started out studying the Sabbath. That's all he knew. So if you're truly going to go back to the faith once delivered to him, his wife Loma told him Saturday was the Sabbath. And the only thing delivered to him was the Sabbath. Anything he learned after that wasn't once delivered, but twice or three times or fourth time delivered, if you will. Follow me? Saying the faith once delivered to him and going back to whatever article or broadcast or ever, whatever it was, that was his first understanding. 
is not the faith once delivered. If that were the case, his first understanding of Pentecost would have us still keeping it on Monday. Or it might even go further back, I don't remember. He might have kept Sivan 6 like the Jews do for a long time, I don't know. But it came out for Monday in his argument. But he finally realized it should be Sunday and changed it. So the faith once delivered to him had to have been either Sivan 6 or a Monday for Pentecost. Let's understand what the faith once delivered means. This book is the faith once delivered. It was only delivered once through the apostles, speaking of the New Testament. It was delivered to the early New Testament church by Christ and repeated by his apostles in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and then expounded upon and included in Scripture through the rest of the New Testament. Christ only delivered it to them once while he was here. Now, many different sessions, I understand. But a body of deliverance he gave them. All the teachings he gave them while he was here. That's the faith that he delivered once, and it has not been delivered since. Now, speaking of the Old Testament, he delivered a certain amount of it once through Moses, once through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms, whatever. And he hasn't had to re-deliver it since, except in how the New Testament uh, impacted the Old, upgraded to a spiritual covenant. But he only delivered it, in any case, once. So, what I'm saying is, he delivered it and put it in this book, and we have since, whether we were two centuries after Christ, or 15, or 19, or 21st century, are only going back to this book which was once delivered to us. So what some man being converted believed at one point or another in his life is not the faith once delivered. Instead, it was the initial understanding or misunderstanding of a man who was learning what the faith once delivered was all about. And through that man's life, whether it was Armstrong's, yours, or mine, we have continued to learn more about this book which was delivered to us. So the teaching here is the faith once delivered. Let's understand that and not be misled when somebody says, well, the first thing Herbert Armstrong understood must have been the first thing God revealed to him, so it had to be right. No, not at all. He started out not knowing anything about this book, not even which day was the Sabbath. And over a period of time, he learned more and more and more about the faith once delivered to the saints by Christ and the apostles. Therefore, I say, I don't care what Herbert Armstrong said in any era or period of his life. All I care about is what this book says. 
Now that's why when I got into the subject of government, I didn't quote Herbert Armstrong or play any of his tapes or read any of his letters. I just read to you what Paul and the other apostles and Christ said about government. Because that's all that matters. This is the faith once delivered. I'm emphasizing that a bit because that is an old ploy that has been used many, many times over the decades to try to prove your idea is right compared with Herbert Armstrong at some point in his life. Now, as he learned, he retracted things. He changed things because he got closer to and a better understanding of the faith once delivered by those who delivered it. Now, he was used as an instrument to teach it, to guide us in it, but was all this delivered to him in 1927? No. He had to learn it day by day, week by week, as he went through life, just as we have had to. So this book and the doctrine in it are how we distinguish truth from error. The spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Does what they preach coincide with what we understand from this book? Or is it human imagination, human fantasy, human logic, human nature, or whatever? Now that's how you try the spirit, or spirits whether they are of God. Invariably, if it's a demon spirit, lying spirit, it won't fit this book. And if it's somebody who's teaching false doctrines, it won't fit this book. Now, there's another good reason to know what this book says. We went through Luke 24 in Bible study the other night, and I might mention a principle from there for those of you who were not able to be there. But Luke in chapter 24 speaks of events that occurred that no one else of the gospel writers mentioned about the two men walking the road to Emmaus and how Christ appeared uh, and then appeared to the disciples after those two guys went back and told them what had happened to them. That's the only place that this is recorded. Why? Christ, in both instances, in those two stories, referred them back to the prophecies of himself in particular. That he was coming, and the things that would transpire in his life, and what would be done to him at the end of his life on this earth. Because they were having trouble believing he was the true Son of God. They were having trouble believing his doctrines. They were having trouble with everything spiritual. He says, didn't you read the scriptures? Why didn't you read the scriptures? Back there it told you everything that was going to happen. Now it's happening, you still don't believe it. Now he has filled the Bible with scriptures about his second coming. With end time events with what would happen to the church, why it would happen, and who did it. He has filled the prophecies of this book, not just with his first coming, but with his second coming. 
And his warnings in his ministry on this earth were about his second coming. Before I return, this, 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 and this will happen. Now, a lot of the things that are contained in here, including a war in Syria and Iraq, are foretold in this book. And will tell you how they play out and what's going to happen. It's all in here. What will happen to this nation, Israel? Babylon. Israel became Babylonian and ruled over by a Babylonian government. The whole story is in the prophecies. Most people don't understand it. Most people in the church have not examined all those prophecies with the church in the end time in mind in detail, and they still don't get it. So what Luke wrote in chapter 24 was for us upon, upon whom the ends of the world have come. The advice that he wrote down under inspiration was, read the book, read the prophecies, understand what is happening and why. They're all in here, just as they were all in there about his first coming. That's how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What does this book say? And how much do we know about this book? Bible study isn't just to appear righteous. Bible study is to enter our inward parts, the deepest, deepest parts of our minds and emotions. And it is to instruct us on what is coming and how and why and when, almost, and where. doesn't get specific about exactly when for the most part, but the rest of it he does. The who, what, why, where, and how. When he keeps to himself. To one degree or another, but he tells us to watch the signs and know that it's near, even though you may not know the exact time. So everything we really need to know is in this book, and through it, we should be able to discern those who are teaching falsely and those who are teaching correctly. Now, we need to understand about human nature. If we do not understand that, then conversion is a very arduous process. Now, it's going to be difficult under any circumstances. Why? Because of what the human mind is. Water fairly easily is changed into steam. Apply a little heat and poof, there goes the water. Boils away rapidly. Fairly easy, just turn up the heat. Human nature does not convert into the nature of God that easily. It is a very difficult thing. Let's understand what human nature is. Now, this has been talked about a lot, and I've heard in the church over the years that human nature is a mixture of good and evil. I think that is a highly arguable point. 
it is essentially based upon the fact that we see evil things happening in the world and we see some good things happening in the world that aren't bad things in and of themselves and may do good for someone. So we see acts or conduct that can sometimes appear good or appear evil and in fact be good or evil. But what about human nature at its core? Is it a mixture of good and evil? Is it all good? I think we can answer that very quickly. No. Is it all evil? Now that was a little tougher. Let's look at some scriptures and see what God says. You all know Jeremiah 17.9 very, very well. But I'm going to read it again. The heart is deceitful above all things. There is nothing more deceitful, more lying, further from the truth, further from goodness, than the human heart. And how wicked is it? Is it a mixture of good and evil? And desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now there's wicked, and there's desperately wicked. Now there's danger, and there is desperation. We're all in danger of dying someday. But at the moment, we're not careening down a mountainside at 100 miles an hour in a car, tumbling end over end, are we? The gas tank has not just ignited and we haven't just hit the bottom of the canyon or a tree. Now, that would be desperate end-of-life circumstances. So when God says the heart is not only deceitful above anything else there is, it is also desperately wicked. Desperation is a very strong term. So far in that verse, I don't see much room for good and evil. Do you? Luke 11, verse 13. Let's put it in Christ's own words. Luke 11. And here I want uh, 13. Now, he's speaking here uh, of a normal human circumstance. Let's go back to verse 11. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give a, for a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? No, a normal father will not do that. He has the best interests of his son or daughter in mind, and he's going to give him something that's palatable that won't sting or hurt or harm him and be good for his health. <coughs> that's the normal human way of treating our children. But notice verse 13. If you then, being evil, 
Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Now, God is good. But there's nothing in the Bible that I've ever found that said humans or human nature is or are good. But I find statements like this. You being evil. Now, if we are by nature evil, how do we then do good things? That comes down to that part of human nature that is the empirical self, I. So we have what the Greeks called philios, or human love, human affection, for our own. For those that are part of me, that is, my mate, my children, my dog, my relatives, my friends, we have an affection for. So, our human nature, which is selfish, includes that which is in its circle of self. But it's only human emotion. It it is not the goodness of God. Therefore, we can do good acts toward those that we love, humanly, philios. But selfishness is innate to us. It's built in. It's there from the time we come squalling out into the world. I want warmth. I want comfort. I want food. I want changed. I want held. I want, I want, I want. We are selfish to the core from our first breath. And Satan works on that and makes it even worse. Let's go back to Romans 5. Romans 5, and here down in about verse 10, I think is about where I want to start. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son... Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Not anything we do good on our own. But do you recognize that we were enemies of God as normal, natural human beings walking the face of the earth? That was our natural state. Enemies of God. Now, he even says that Christ did not die... For the righteous, but for the wicked. He loved his enemies. So much so, all human beings being his enemies, that he was willing to give his life for all mankind. Now, you may have grown up thinking you were, that you loved God. But it was not by God's definition of His love. It was only by human emotion. 
because we cannot have the love of God except through the Spirit of God, which we do not have until we are converted, and it is given at the laying on of hands when we have repented before baptism, not just gone through a symbolism. It is critical that we understand this. Let's go on in Romans a little bit more. Uh, chapter 3. We'll go backward before we go forward here. Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, he's quoting two places in the Psalms here, uh, Psalm 14:3 and 53:3. So when he says, that is, as it is written, he's quoting from those two places. There is none righteous, no, not one. As human beings, of and by ourselves, there is not one righteous. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. And he goes on to emphasize that. All the world is guilty before God, into verse 19. Verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if you think a human being is good, I've got some scriptures for you. Uh, well, let's stay in Romans for a moment instead of coming back to it. Romans 8. Well, I want part of 7, too. Let's start in 7. <clears throat> verse 14. Well, back in verse 12, he says, The law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. And most people say the law is evil and nasty, and you need to stay away from the law. But Paul says the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just and good. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual. The Ten Commandments of God are spiritual. They're not just some physical rules laid down by Moses. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would do, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. I'll admit the law is good, but I have trouble keeping it, he says. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. He, as a human being had been overcome by selfishness, idolatry, humanness. And he had to overcome that, but he was having a war, a battle royal with it. Notice verse 18. For I know, I know, that in me, that is in my flesh, apart from the Spirit of God, just as a natural human being, that in me dwells no good thing. 
There is no good thing in human nature, according to what Paul said right here. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. The good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Haven't we all faced that? I know what I ought to do, but this is what I want to do. I know what I ought to think, but this is what I'm thinking. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, once God begins to put his spirit in us, but I see another law in my members. It's a law in a human being. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. It doesn't seem to me that Paul is talking about a mixture of good and evil within himself. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In him dwelt no good thing. But there's an answer. Verse 25, I thank God through Emmanuel our Lord... So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. God's Spirit was interacting with his mind, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Notice chapter 8, then, with that basis. Verse 6. For to be carnally minded, naturally normally minded, human minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. When the Spirit of God enacts, reacts in and with our mind, we can begin to find some life and peace. Because the natural, meaty, carnal, carne in Spanish, meaty, normal, natural, human mind, is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are walking in, implied, the flesh, cannot please God. Cannot. It's impossible. Can't do it. Their mind is an enemy, enmity against God in his way, by nature. Looking bad for the home team here. All right, let's go to Matthew 19. Christ very quickly was able to knock some false thinking in the head. Chapter 19, uh, let's start in verse 16. Uh, Behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Good master, he called Christ. Christ took exception to that. He said to him, Why call you me good? There is none good but one that is God. Christ was the Son of God, incarnated as a human being on this earth, 
with a human nature. Human nature is ungodly. So even though he had never broken the law, he had never sinned, he had never done anything selfish, he still did not consider himself good. When Christ walked this earth, he was selfless. He put others ahead of himself. He put their comfort, their healing, their life above his own. He died for us when we were yet enemies and yet sinners before God. He truly loved his enemies, as he instructs us to do in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And laid down his life, not for his friends, not for the righteous, but for the enemies of God. All human beings who are by nature enemies of God. So when Christ came to this earth, even though his conduct was immaculate, it was perfect. He still said, I am not good. There is only one that is. His Father in heaven, who had not become human. But by very, the very fact that he was a human being breathing on this earth and had human nature, which is evil in and of itself. Do we believe he had human nature? Some don't. He was tempted in all points like as we are. His human flesh cried out to be selfish. It cried out to put himself first. It cried out for food, for drink, for sex, for entertainment. It cried out for all kinds of things because he had human desires. He was able through the power and the Spirit of Almighty God, never to give in to the baser side of human nature, which he fought every day he walked on this earth. If you don't believe that he had that fight, then you don't understand Christ at all. And you need to. Didn't the prophecies, again, say what would happen to him? What he would have to go through? And he had the urge to defend himself? He had the urge to tell them they were wrong? Don't you know I'm the Son of God? But he never did. Isaiah 53 said he opened not his mouth, did not defend himself in any way. Totally meek, totally human, I mean humble. Let no pride, no ego, no vanity, no selfishness come through. What an incredible example he set for us. One that none of us have lived up to. But we're supposed to be headed there 
with him being formed in us. And yet finding ourselves in the state that Paul found himself. O wretched man that I am, in me dwells no good thing. Let's go on here in Matthew 19. Good master, that was his first mistake. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, that is God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. And what did the young man say? I've done that all my life. I've been good. I've kept the commandments. In his mind, he felt he was a good human being and that he had always kept the commandments. He hadn't killed anybody. He hadn't stolen anything. He'd kept the Sabbath, maybe. Did Christ go through all that with him? He was a young rich man. All he had to do was say, Okay, if you're good, give all you have to the poor and come and follow me. Oh, wait a minute. He didn't have to go past the first commandment. Idolatry. He put himself, his money, his life ahead of God and what he was instructed to do. Every one of us is an idolater to the core. The God is self. I, me, my, mine is our first and foremost God. That's why we break the commandments. Because we want to do this, we want to think this, I want to have this. I know your word says that, but don't look right now. I've got something I want to do or think. We put our desires, our wants, what we consider our needs, ahead of God. And anything you put ahead of God is an idol. So we idolize ourselves immediately. First and foremost, we create an idol, even though we're totally blissfully unaware of it, from the time we're born again. Squalling me, 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 me. That's why they can have a little movie where the gulls are saying, mine, 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 and it strikes a chord in all of us and is cute and funny to us all. Because it's so natural and so normal and therefore we respond to it. Because everybody around us is that way. But so are we. Every one of us. Do I like your dog? I don't know, depends. I like my dog. I like what I want to eat. I like what I want to feel. I like the temperature I like. I don't care if you're hot or cold. I want to be comfortable. We are selfish by nature. We are idolatrous by nature. That's all it took for Christ to completely destroy this guy's self-image. He didn't have to have a long session. Just, oh, okay, you kept the commandments all your life? Give all your money away. Come and follow me. 
Whoa! That's my money. <laughs> Part of my empirical self. Do you like your money better than somebody else's money? Well, maybe not. Maybe you covet theirs too. But you want it to be mine if you covet. How many times do we hear somebody start telling a story and we want to tell ours? Can't wait for them to get through relating their story so we can tell ours. Ours is more interesting. Ours is more important. Ours is more relevant. Because it's ours. We could go on and on with this. Let's see if I have another one here. Oh, let's at least hit one more. Galatians 5. Here, and we're all familiar with this. Uh... Verse 16 of Galatians 5. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you walk in the flesh, you do the things of the flesh and the things that are comforting and pleasurable to you. So he says, walk in the Spirit instead. For, or because, the flesh lusts against the Spirit... And the spirit against the flesh. There is an automatic confrontation, a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. It's just there. And these are contrary the one to the other. They're the opposites. The flesh and the spirit of God are opposite. I don't see any good or evil here yet, do you? Opposite. Completely different. Contrasting. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. We struggle to obey God. To control our thoughts, our words, our actions if we're trying to walk in the Spirit. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law, or the penalty of the law, it should say. If you're, if you're keeping the law, then it has no penalty. The wages of sin is death. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now let's see how many good and how many evil he names. Okay. Here are the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, any type of uncleanness, lawlessness, idolatry, self being the first idol, witchcraft, hatred, variance, or uh, alienation. Emulations can mean envy or seditious wrath strife sedition which is division heresies false doctrine envying murders drunkenness revelings or wrong kind of partying and such like anything else evil you want to name fits the human being 
Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So a human being who is following the flesh does the above things. And everyone that is mentioned here is evil. Now let's see the contrast. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now those are all desirable things, are they not? All things that we would love to be and to exhibit. But you don't learn those without the Spirit of God. The true agape or love of God Human beings live and do the works of the flesh. And it's getting worse and worse in our society just like it was before Noah. Right? Until it'll be evil continually. Now, I know the scripture that says that even the Gentiles do good things by nature there in Romans. But what does that mean based on these other scriptures? It means that... They have come to understand that you have to have rules for a society to exist. Without any rules, anybody kills anybody, anybody steals, anybody does anything they humanly wish to do, and there is no such thing as an orderly society, period. Even in our society, which has some basis in Scripture... We have millions of rules and laws. Why? Because human nature is innately evil and wants its own way and its wealth and its health and its whatever it wants. So it will find a way around any rule you make. It'll find an exception, whether it's an IRS rule or whatever it might be. So every time the pig gets through the fence, they make a new rule to keep him in the fence. So we have rule after rule after rule. Because by nature, we will do the selfish thing every time. Now, why do we then sometimes do good, even though our nature may be evil? Because we do recognize partially from the Bible, in this country at least, that there is a way that society can operate and work, and there's a way that it won't. So from the time our children are little, we start dealing with their selfish nature. I won't call it evil, because you might think of someone like Hitler, FDR, or somebody like that is evil. Let's just say selfish from childhood. Parents know that you can't have a family that gets along with that type of dysfunction. So they begin to teach the child to go against his nature, to share his toy, to share his cookie, to share his hugs and kisses. We have to teach them those things from the time they're little. 
It's easier to foul your diaper than it is to learn to sit on the toilet. We have to teach him that that's not a good thing. Oh, I'm not supposed to do it in my diaper? Oh, well, that's hard, Ma. And it takes a while, especially with boys. Ooh. No, we're selfish from the very beginning. And we never get over it unless and until the Spirit of God acts upon and interacts with us and begins to teach us His love, which is totally unselfish. And that's the kind of love that John is trying to get across to us in this book. Our human love, by nature, is selfish. As I said before, our empirical self. My family, my dog, my car, my money, my comfort, or whatever. It's just natural. It's just normal. You have to go beyond that to begin to truly, with godly motive, take care of others. Most good things that human beings do for one another has a selfish motive if you look deep enough. I want to be liked. I want to be loved. I want to be complimented. I want to be praised. Therefore, I'll do something for you so that you will reciprocate to me and I'll be mad if I don't have a Christmas gift. Maybe not mad, but peeved to some degree. Because I gave to you and you didn't give to me. Now, that takes many, many different forms. We don't keep Christmas, so you're off the hook now. But there are other things, believe me, there are. I'm an expert on this. I know. We do the things we do to get something in return by nature. That's why he said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Forgive your enemies. Love them. If you're going to come to have the love of God, you're going to have to love your worst enemy. That is tough. But God did it. Christ did it. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. If we are to fight to walk in the Spirit and to be like Christ and have His nature and His character formed in us, I think it's important that we understand where we start and what we have to work with. Herbert Armstrong used to say that we're a mixture of good and evil. And yet, when it came time to talk about baptism, he would say, I had to come to realize I was a burned out hunk of junk, if you remember his exact words. How much value, how much good is there in a burned out hunk of junk? None. To be disposed of. So even though he saw good and bad conduct on the surface and perhaps was a little confused on this, when it came down to really understanding what you need to see before you're baptized, he realized 
that you need to come to see it as Paul saw it. In me, there is no good thing. I am selfish, and I am idolatrous to the core. And without God, I have no hope. As Paul said, But I do have hope, and that Christ is willing to come and live in me, to work through me, and help me think as he thought, and walk as he walked. And that's what Paul means when he opens this chapter by saying, you've got to believe that Christ is coming in the flesh to live his life in us, as he expressed it in other places which we read. Now that should put a little different spin on confessing that he is coming in the flesh. It's much, much deeper than we might sometimes give it. Well, I'm out of time, watch or no watch, so I better quit. See you next time.